I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. And with me, as always, is that witchy woman, Jeff Goad. Well, hello. Today, we're really honored to have special guest Hamza Kazmi, a partner at the Hydra Cooperative, editor, among other works, Misty Isles of the Elbe, What Ho Frog Demons, Lauren's Song of the Bachelor, and Operation Unfathomable, and also blogger at Legacy of the BF. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. We're honored. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. (laughs) Likewise. So... I hear you're disappointed with us for something. <laughs> Heartbroken. Heartbroken. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's my, do it. Uh, my dearly beloved, you know, John Belairs and his face in the frost, and I heard some harsh words introducing <laughs> that wonderful book. Uh, <laughs> it is a great book. Uh, and I actually liked um, uh, House with the Clock on Its Wall. It's probably my favorite of his. But. That, was, that was my introduction to him as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, like... I, when I got it, I was you know a small child, and it had a very well done, uh, creepy illustration of a terrifying clock, mm-hmm. and I was scared of that book for ages. And mm-hmm. then I finally mustered up my courage and opened it up, and fell in love with Belair's writing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, don't get me wrong, Face in the Frost, like it's not perfect. It's got a couple of rough parts, but I think it holds up really well overall mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny after i asked Hamza to be on the show he sent me he, he was like listening through and he listened to that one and sent me a message and i was like sorry man like i get it like i i understand why people love it for me just the blend of the really dark stuff and the and the really goofy humor just didn't work for me but i could totally see why it would work for other people right. i think just it climbs, wasn't my style it climbs a lot higher on our list now that we've read uh, some frederick brown and uh very fair yes and i actually did that get an, end up getting tapped to write the john belair's entry for the adventures in fiction for goodman games so oh right on yeah so that's and i think i i hope i did him justice there so uh, there we go. So, all right. Excellent. It could have been worse. All right. I was, I was, I was afraid we'd, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, murdered one of your, you know, distant ancestors, like, you know, in, in a parallel universe or something like that. But, okay. But I mean, look, that guy had it coming. And no worries. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, so, uh, we like to ask, uh, as standard questions, uh, how did you get into RPG? And also... When did you become aware of the concept of Appendix N, if ever? You know, I saw ads for D&D. Like, I think the first comic I ever had had an ad for the Ravenloft campaign setting, which meant nothing to me. It was a bunch of jibber-jabber and a picture of a vampire, because I was, like, five. <laughs> but um, I think my first exposure to the concepts in D&D was seeing uh, one of the Choose Your Own Adventure knockoffs, the Endless Quest series, yeah. that TSR uh, put out back in the day. And I got one at like a big old used book sale that used to go on uh, when I was a kid. And it was, um, it was returned to Brookmere. Um, and it wound up inculcating a love of playing elven fighters in me, which has persisted throughout the years. <laughs> yeah. um, finally being able to put together some of the context of 
what the heck this thing that was referencing, you know, what is this Dungeons and Dragons? Um, having that book plus a, a pre-existing interest in fantasy literature, um, you know, reading The Hobbit as a kid, reading a bunch of Norse mythology, I was already primed and good to go when that happened to uh, pass my way. Mm-hmm. And then in elementary school, there were a couple of kids who actually had, you know, RPGs, brought them to school and like, oh, this is what that was building up to. Now I get it. <laughs> so started playing uh, RPGs in fourth grade and never looked back. There you go. That's so cool. Um, Do you have a favorite system for playing an elven fighter? I mean, I've been going pretty heavily into BX over the past uh, eight years. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I've been playing in Chris Kotalik's Hill Cantons campaign and have a long running uh, elf character there. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the the BX or now old school essentials uh, elf is, is probably the most well done, you know, in terms of a class. It's well balanced. It's not like I think Jeff and you, have, uh, you and I have talked about how the DCC elf is a little kind of out of whack a little bit. I mean, I love it, but yeah. 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 Uh, so I've read through DCC and I've played a funnel game, but I've never had a chance to uh, sort of play it at the more standard levels. What's, mm-hmm. uh, what's out of whack with the elf there? Uh, it's not so much out of whack. I think it's it's kind of trying to be two things. It's trying to be a little bit of a Tolkien elf, but it's also trying to be sort of the pre-Tolkien, sort of a um, little bit more weird, dark fae elf. Mm. And it doesn't quite hit either note in my mind. Uh, I think it's still a good class. And mechanically, it's fine, other than the sort of, for the um, as you complained about, Jeff, the their vulnerability to iron is not strong enough. Yeah, because yeah, they, they, they do have an elven vulnerability to iron that um, if they're holding something that's iron, it does them one point of damage per day. Yeah. But they also heal. But everybody heals one point of damage per day. So it's <laughs> right. like it right. literally has no effect. Right. Unless you literally say that they can't heal that damage. And that's mm-hmm. then you have to house rule that. And then as fighters, they're just not that good as fighters. I think right. it's so. Uh, whereas in the BX are just as good as any other fighter. It's just that they take forever to level up. So, uh, but in, in DCC, they're not quite as good. They don't have as good crits as even the halfling does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they have great magic. Their magic is dark they and do. weird. They're basically just, because um, wizards in DCC also have long swords. So they're basically just wizards with a, with a higher hit die and iron vulnerability. Right. And they get and patrons. So they can, right. And, and they, they get, get automatic patrons, yes. Yeah, they mm. can do so. So they can bond with, uh, you know, higher power or infernal powers for that matter from the very beginning whereas wizards might have to seek that out so so sure. it uh it's also uh sprinkling in a little bit more of the elric archetype then a little bit of yes. elric a little uh dunsany uh i mean it's definitely going back trying to reach back to you a little further than than the you know the sort of noble tolkienian elf or now it's just um again i think a lot of the problems with the later elf systems is that they're a little bit just like why would you play in anything other than an elf <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Hamza, uh, your history with the Appendix N, were you aware of it kind of before we asked you to be on the show? Yeah. Um, I picked up a uh, used copy of the first edition DMG in around like eighth grade or so. Okay. And, you know, uh, poured through it all. I, I had the second edition material uh, before then. That's what I started with. But I found this used copy, uh, went on through, and uh, like other sources uh, reference some of the foundational books, but then seeing it laid out in Appendix N uh, let me uh, sort of connect the dots. Oh, 
this is that Fritz library that people were talking about. You know, this is that Jack Vance. Okay, this is where it's all coming together. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely gone through and checked out a couple of authors specifically because of their inclusion on the list and seeing, you know, hey, what was uh, interesting or inspirational about them. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorites? Uh, let's see. Uh, the favorite who should have been on the list, who y'all have covered, is Clark Ashton Smith. Oh, yes. Uh, right I've re- I really loved his stuff and it still boggles my mind that uh, Smith was not included on the main appendix N. Mm-hmm. Um, for folks who were, um, normally I would say Vance, but I finally took a look at Rialto the Marvelous just a couple of days ago. And for whatever reason, that one didn't quite click with me in the way that the other Vancean stuff did. Sure. So I might need to revisit my rankings. <laughs> <laughs> Very fair. So chatting about Web of the Witch World, uh, Hamza, which version of the book are you working with? So I was using the Amazon ebook, which was uh, published by World Builders Press. Um, so that was a relatively recent re-release from 2016. How's the cover? Uh, it's a pretty generic swords and sorcery cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got the 1964 first edition paperback with the Jack Gogan cover. And it's just like a bunch of dudes on a Viking ship. Right. So I don't really know that it captures the essence of the book so well, but it is a very cute little paperback. I do like that the figurehead dragon looks like he's just bellowing up to the bar and saying, hey, what's good, Mac? (laughs) (laughs) I'll have whatever's cheap. Right, right. I've got (laughs) what I think is the third printing uh, with um, the Bradford Meltzer cover, which is the, and it looks like the gate at the end of the book, and it's not clear whether this is Jaylith or um, the villainous type character, or even the, the senior witch, but uh, it's very green and yellow, and I'm pretty sure it's from 1970. Um, so that's what I've got today. Perfect. And before we go into the library, we'll take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Toxin. Toxin. And it's not T-O-X-I-N, like you might think. It's T-O-C-S-I-N. And Toxin is found on page eight of my version. And it says he was listening now, not only with the sense he could not have named, which had warned him out of sleep, but with his ears for the warning Toxin on the tower above. And a Toxin is an alarm bell or signal. So now we can head on into the library. Hamza, what did you think of Web of the Witch World? I really enjoyed it. I I wish I had encountered uh, this as a kid. Um, Yeah. Because... This hit on, you know, this would have hit on all cylinders for me as a, as a kid reading this. Um, as an adult, uh, I enjoyed it. There were a couple of bits which seemed a bit shoehorned in to lay pipe for uh, stuff later down in the line. Mm-hmm. But overall, I had a, um, had a good time with it. I was uh, very happy to see that, unlike you know some of the other books in Appendix N, which are very much focused on you know the male uh, protagonists like uh, unsurprisingly uh given that the uh andre norton is a woman that you know it's got a mix of male and uh, female protagonists and the female protagonists have their own agency and their own perspectives and lives outside of the male characters that they're paired with and um had you gone back to read the first witch world book did you find it difficult to understand what was going on because i noticed there's a lot of references to the first book in this Uh, so no i have not read the first one yet uh based on this i definitely do want to read the first one Mm -hmm. uh but 
I didn't find it too bad uh, picking up from uh, from here. Like, mm -hmm. there's certainly a bit of uh, floundering around for who the heck these various factions are and what's going on, but there's enough signposting that you're able to pick everything up from context, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these stories were written to kind of be picked up off of the rack and be able to, no matter where you were in the series, be right, able to right. enjoy the book on its own. Right. It's certainly not numbered like which world book to. And I think, you know, especially, you know, as you say, these were probably, you know, on spinner racks and drugstores. So you could never yeah. have any guarantee of finding the first book in right. those days. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, um, I also felt like I, I agree with the idea that it felt like there was a bunch of stuff shoehorned in there. I really enjoyed this book. Um, but one of the things that I just kind of happened to notice was uh, as I was going through, I noticed that almost all of the chapters are exactly 10 pages. Hmm. So I started to wonder, like, and I started building this whole narrative in my mind, like perhaps Andre Norton was like under was under deadline. And she's like, OK, I got to get this out. I'll do I'll do a chapter a day, 10 pages per chapter, <laughs> turn this thing out. And I, I, th I feel like that's why some things don't feel like they're completely resolved. Um, I don't know, like in our, in our we have a patron book club before we record the episodes. And one of the guys in our patron book club was um, saying that, like, he felt like the whole all this storyline was um, unresolved and very unclear, like how much how much of this was was her being under control, how much of this was her kind of acting mm. on her own volition. Why did she go through the gate at the end? He had a lot of questions around that. Uh, you know, Hamza, you're an editor. Do you sense any sort of editorial, you know, just looking at this, you know, editorial influence or or you think this is a natural writing style? Or? I don't have enough familiarity with Norton's work to yeah. meaningfully respond to that. I've read yeah. one book of hers before, mm -hmm. a YA book called Steel Magic, which was okay. a fun, charming one. But I read that, you know, decades ago. So... Mm. I don't have a basis to assess, you know, what her style's like normally and what, you know, mm. the hand of editorial. Right, right. Uh, so I was noticing, and I mentioned in the book club too, that it seemed, um, and I was joking, it felt like that she'd taken out every 10th word just to make everything, <laughs> everything to fit into the, uh, and I still, I mean, it still made sense, but it was, it was definitely some weird transitions within, within sentences, within paragraphs like, like we, literally from one sentence to the next within the paragraph, it changes point of view a couple of times mm -hmm. um, instead of like blocking off as a separate paragraph. And so I, I wonder also, she was so prolific. I wonder if also she, like what her process was, whether she was like a multiple draft writer or she mm. just tended to do like a draft and a quick reread and polish. Um, you know, it would be very interesting if anybody, if we ever talked to somebody who, you know, worked with her and knew For her sure. process. Yeah. And I thought that there was a lot, there's still a lot that can be said about her pro style that I did really enjoy, though. Um, one of the things that I thought was really cool was the way that she does this, uh, how she plays with the close third person narrative. How there's that one moment where Simon is kind of having, he, he's, and it, it's not in italic, so it's not like he's actively thinking words. Just um, Andre Norton is just kind of writing down kind of what's going on in Simon's mind. He's thinking like, oh, well, maybe if we do this, this will work. And maybe this isn't a great idea. And then suddenly Jaylith just responds to this like narrative, to this like kind of block of narrative text. So it then shows us that like, oh, Jaylith has been listening to this this whole time. She's been kind of in Simon's head. But it was a really kind of interesting way to kind of surprise the reader in the same way where that, that Simon is surprised when suddenly she's responding to what he's saying or to mm -hmm. what he's thinking. The one uh, passage that stood out for me that I liked was the 
introduction of the colder control over Simon uh-huh. uh, when he's uh, fin- he's making the decision to use the airships uh, and the sudden working in of like colder thought patterns without any sort of indication initially that this is different from Simon's normal thoughts until it's uh, quite clear that, oh, this is antithetical to the Simon we've seen throughout the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, suddenly he's calling the witches hags and right, getting right. quite upset at them and talking right. about how we need to destroy Escarp. Right, right, right. And he sort of lampshades it by wondering earlier whether it's, he should even use their technology, right? And he's very reluctant to bring up the possibility of using the the the, uh, the airships. Yeah, and, and then and then, but without actually explicitly saying, "Oh, this is why it's going to happen." And you know, I don't, I think he doesn't even know. And then it does happen to him. I, I don't know that it was uh, con- the airship that was the issue. I thought it was just the devices from uh, Falk, and the, uh, it's only the the change. In, uh, excuse me. It's the um, the device bends his thoughts towards being willing to consider it in the first place. Right. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say specifically it's the airship. It's just that the more closely he's associated with colder technology. Right. And so just, the, just the, the little thing on his belt is sort of enough to sort of make him consider it. But then it brings him into closer contact with the airship. And then he's getting into their thought patterns by having to use the airship the way that they would use it. And then before he knows it, he's tipping into thinking like them. Um, yeah. Actually, the, uh, this, just remi- this just reminded me of something... Um, have either of you ever seen the film The Court Jester? No. Uh, that's uh, Danny Kaye? Or... Yes. It, yeah. uh, it's a Danny Kaye film, um, Robin Hood-ish riff. Um, and there's a subplot in there where the lead character is hypnotized by a witch uh, and convinced that he is a master swordsman. And there's a, com- a couple of comedic scenes where he's brought in and out of hypnosis uh, and goes from being this fencing virtuoso to a terrified man who has no idea where he is or why he's suddenly facing off against a master swordsman. <laughs> and I just suddenly thought of that and thought of uh, Simon flying the colder airship and you know, switching between like this colder agent of, yes, of course, I know what I'm doing to, oh, God, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's actually, it's interesting because you mentioned that. It's also pretty, Simon himself pretty much explicitly says, like, you know, I'm a soldier. I don't know anything about naval tactics. Um, you know, I'm not a good swordsman because, you know, in, in I came from 20th century. I'm good with the dart gun. And so that's actually also an interesting admission that you don't necessarily normally see in heroic fantasy that that he has areas where he's not competent right? yeah it was refreshing to see yeah like so. we, we always get the omnicompetent uh you know oh of course i'm this 20th century man from earth i right, can right. do anything right right <laughs> that brings up back to sort of the heroic fans i don't think there's explicitly a wish fulfillment figure in any of the uh, the two andre norton books we've read so far there are quite powerful interesting people but none of them is explicitly a wish fulfillment figure the way that you know conan is or even Fafford and the Mouser are to, you know, a lesser extent, but, you know, or reflective of the personality of their creators. And so this is, that's interesting to me that in this, none of the characters here are like, oh, this is I, Andre Norton, you know, exclusively, you know, she might be spread among all the characters, but she's not explicitly one of these characters. Hmm. And I also feel like a big thing that's happening in the storyline too, is this idea that um, two people together in love can 
uh, create something really kind of special and magical that one person on their own cannot. That really kind of seemed to be kind of at the core of a lot of what was happening with Simon and Jaleth. Mm-hmm. You know, Jaleth felt like she had given up her power because that's what the witches had always said would happen if she revealed her name and got married. But um, the opposite has happened. She's uh, she's still quite powerful, but she's more powerful because of her union with Simon. And likewise, Simon can now do a bunch of things that he wasn't able to do because of his union with Jaleth. Right. And I thought the dynamics around that were really interesting where initially, you know, Simon has this first reaction of, but what about us? But what about me? And (laughs) then, you You loved uh, me. (laughs) And, you know, then like has this moment of sort of talking himself through it and saying, wait, that's me being a terrible person. Let's not do that. And that was really cool to see. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I did wonder, though, uh, what about the other uh, couple at, uh, in the book, um, you know, Chorus and Lois? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Lois seemed a bit sort of shoehorned into uh, the magical interaction for the sake of plot to some degree. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that her bond with Chorus is just as strong. Uh, poor Chorus got somewhat short shrift in the back half of the book. Um, right. No pun intended. Um, but like, you know, their romantic bond and their personal connection is just as strong. Um, she's never had any connection with, um, magical power, but for the sake of being able to get to the next plot scene, it felt like, oh, well, I guess she can hop in on this three-way call because that's what I need for it to work out. Right. Yeah. And in general, I feel like Lois is the character who I was the most disappointed with in this book because mm-hmm. Lois was probably my favorite character in the first book. She had a stronger arc in the first she book. She did, yeah. you know, because in the first book, she starts out in a very similar situation where she's locked away in a tower and she's being forced to marry this exact same dude. Mm-hmm. But like the way that she escapes and takes on this role as Bryant and takes on the male pronoun and actually becomes like this really competent warrior and tells people Lois is dead, Bryant's alive now. And it was this really fascinating character that Lois became. And then once Andre Norton kind of re-feminized Lois and then put her in this relationship with, um, with uh, I almost said Colder, a chorus, um, uh-huh. it almost seems like Andre Norton doesn't quite know what to do with her right now. Mm-hmm. Uh- I'd actually disagree a little bit. Uh, okay. I, I'm coming to this from the uh, from just this book. I haven't read the first one, mm-hmm. but uh, Norton mentions uh, and gives context to Lois early on, discussing uh, what you just mentioned, discussing that backstory. And I felt that that did come through when Lois is initially described and when she's given her viewpoint chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she's facing down... Um, Aldous, and when she's facing down the mercenary whose name I'm blanking on, uh, I think I that she Ivian, Ivian, yeah, or Wyvian, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think she comes across really well there, and I really liked her. Yeah, it's Same. after that when she's once um, w- once you get to the air car crash and Simon's on the scene, then she uh, just turns into a very generic damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. And that was the tipping point, I think. Right, right. But I mean, I, I agree completely. Yeah, I think actually the strongest scene is her initial sort of dialogue with all this back yeah. and forth. That's amazing. Whole, you know, and and all this, 
Um, you don't like her, but she's just a com- very compelling character in that point of the book. Um, and so is Aldous at that point as that, well. And yeah, Aldous yeah. kind of has yeah. a similar trajectory where Aldous is actually a very compelling character in the beginning. Right. And kind of by the end, it's like, all right, she's mind controlled. Right. Um, one thing I loved, though, was uh, when when Aldous is mocking her and she says and she's talking about um, about Volk um, and she's like, our Lord Duke is paramount in all things with sword in council chamber and in bed and his body is not misshapen. <laughs> it's, like, <yeah. laughs> it's like you are so <laughs> right, straight, oh, throw, throwing chorus yeah <laughs> but i think uh there's that uh purity that you're ad- addressing like that lois uh, you know and and chorus right because chorus is sort of misshapen he's kind of described yeah. as having an incredibly handsome face but almost like ape-like physique um and um I think that they are, it's clearly, you see that they're clearly at an earlier stage in their relationship than Simon and, and Jaleth are, right? So that they're in that sort of, um, for lack of a better word, the, the honeymoon phase of their relationship, right? Where yeah. everything is so great if they're together, whereas with Simon and Jaleth, there's doubt creeping in. But one of the really fascinating aspects is them, as you say, Simon getting over himself. <laughs> right. Now, I don't know that it's doubt creeping in on both their parts. I felt like it was a very one-sided doubt. Wow. Jaleth is fine. Yeah, she uh, she's secure in her relationship with Simon. She's very interested in reclaiming this thing that she thought she had to give up. But she's fine on both counts. It's Simon suddenly struggling with, uh, you know, the possibility that he might not be as, you know, as first in line for her interest in time as he thought. Right, right. I guess the one moment where Jaleth creeps in is when she thinks, was this a sacrifice? Was the sacrifice I made even a sacrifice? Mm. And and does it say anything about her? Like, oh, well, I didn't really, you know, uh, like, oh, I get to have it all, or did you know, did I really have to think hard, you know, make a hard choice? Uh, but other than that, she's very competent. She's um, she's by far the best tactical thinker and strategic thinker in the entire book in terms of like laying down a plan for what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a very shrewd judge of character when she picks the the right soul car captain to go out and chase down, you know, Simon and Lois. Uh, so I think in, she's, to me, the most compelling character in this particular book. Now, the witches in the setting are you know, very much the sort of ruling body for Estcarp and the, uh, that polity, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And she's been sort of, uh, she's been a member of the witches you know, since she was a kid. So she's been getting the sort of advanced leadership training that Simon gets a part off, I'm assuming, from his uh, military background, but mm-hmm. she sort of had the advanced course. Right, right. And then it's interesting that the dynamic of her trying to reclaim her place, because even though now she has this power, the other women are like, ah, we're not so sure anymore, you know, about you, you know. Um, and for her to have to sort of reprove that or say, you know what, I'm this other thing. I don't need your, your you know, your overall approval. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and one of the things that I was kind of... Um, theorizing about earlier was this whole idea of like comparing the the Jaleth story to Andre Norton's own story, you know, and the witches in Escarp, if they reveal their name, they lose their power. Mm-hmm. And here we have Andre Norton, who was writing under a man's name, originally under the name of Andre uh, of Andrew North, and then right. later Andre Norton. Here she is writing under a man's name, and perhaps she had also internalized these fears earlier in her career that if she were to reveal her true name, she would lose all of her power. 
Uh, but by this time, Andre Norton, everybody, not everybody, but like people who knew who she was, knew she was a woman. Uh, so at this point in her career, she had reached a point where people had discovered her her true identity and she hadn't lost her power. She was actually still a very successful fantasy and science fiction author. So I wonder how much of that is her kind of playing with her own experiences there. That's a very good point. And uh, yeah, I think you're right that the sort of um, f- uh, the perceived need for obscurity and then being able to push past and say, no, I- I've gone beyond that. I don't need to be concerned about this now. I think that there certainly do seem to be resonances between her past and, uh, and her history and Jalith's arc here. And it's interesting that Simon is our protagonist and the person we, t- we tend to follow the most, but he's really not the character that pops the most in these stories. No, I think any number of the characters pop more. I mean, Chorus, for his own reasons, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all this, Jalith. Um, Simon is sort of our sort of our gateway character, you know, mm-hmm. and I think as she goes on with this series, it's there's it just becomes all characters from which world. There's no longer people from the Earth, you know, coming to be sort of viewpoint characters. Once we've established this is this is which world, and yeah. it's its own thing. You know, I mean, I'll see. I'll be interested to see how it plays out because I haven't actually read any further yet. But I just know from looking at the back covers of the other books and the rest of the series that they don't talk anymore about you know humans from Earth. I mean, my take was that he's that sort of bl- uh, relatively bland, undefined, but. Uh, open as a sort of self-insert and self-perspective character for the audience. Mm-hmm. He, he's he got occasional flashes of characterization, but overall, like, you know, he's... Uh, it felt like he was pretty faceless in comparison to all of the native witch world characters. They all f- felt like they were far stronger in personality. I mean, it's a very tight, short little book, but did you sense also, did you uh, feel like that these various um, cultures that are being sort of lightly sketched came alive in your mind? You know, we have the Salkar, we're sort of semi-Vikings, we have the, the Hawkmen, we have, you know, people the Swamp. Um, did, you, did that come alive for you? Uh, to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, some, of the, uh, some of the cultures have felt like They've got names and they've got concepts, and I can see how they might develop, but I don't necessarily have that much that I can hang my hat on for them. Mm-hmm. Like, Estcarp itself and the old race, I have some stuff. I have, like, the major touchstones for, okay, there, it's this uh, minority that was uh, persecuted and targeted for uh, you know, genocide and extermination, mm-hmm. and you have this... Um, sort of witch cast who are uh, who are pegged as the leaders because of their powers. But in terms of Estcarp as a culture, right. I don't know that I got all that much about it. Yeah, I think the Sulkar, uh, sort of the sort of semi-Viking, semi-adventurer uh, traders are, are more well-drawn. And the, the people in the swamp, I forget what the name is, that, that um, you know, Chorus was originally, his mother came from that society. Right. The, uh, the Tor, I think? Yeah, Tor, yeah. No, no, you, you get little bits here and there that give you a, a sense of the world and i can i'm sure that for example the falconers uh, got more attention and discussion in the previous book just based on how they've been referenced in this one but mm-hmm. there were a lot of blank uh, blank areas that the reader can sort of fill in but not that much filling in has been done i felt 
So Hamza, what is the name of your elven fighter in your BX campaign? Uh, Bakim. Bakim. So let, we know that Simon Trigar stepped in through a portal into which world. Let's say Bakim stepped through a portal into which world as well. And here he is, and he's looking to assemble an adventuring party. Of these characters, who is on the top of your wish list for Bakim's adventuring party? Lois and Chorus. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain bit of kinship with um, with uh, Chorus, especially. Uh, Bakim has uh, gone, has been killed twice and come back through oh. ridiculous rules on a custom campaign reincarnation chart. So, <laughs> so at the moment, uh, when he was last played, Bakim is uh, a Neanderthal dwarf. Physically, <laughs> um, and oh, so man. there is um, there, there's a certain kinship with like the very quixotic, um, you know, uh, ugly looking kind of you know outsider chorus there. Yes, um, and chorus is very much the you know charge into battle with a you know shout of defiance and a smile on his lips, and that's. That's Bakim very strongly. Mm -hmm. So this was not specifically cited as something to read on the appendix, and just Andre Norton in general was. Um, but while reading Witch World, Web of the Witch World, did this feel super D and super proto D and D to you? Actually, the thing it most reminded me of was something uh, post D and D or post okay. uh, uh, first edition D and D. Um, so I worked on Misty Isle to the Eld, uh, mm -hmm. the third Hill Cantons module. And I have not talked with Chris about A Web of the Witch World, but the back half of the book, the finding the colder base and the assault, there were a lot of resonances with, uh, with Misty Isle to the Eld for me. The uh -huh. Eld are a lawful evil space elves uh, extraplanar invaders with a taste <laughs> for bureaucracy, biomancy, and Bowie. Um, <laughs> and the colder are nowhere near as styling, I think, but the same, uh, the same bits of hidden island base, extraplanar invasion, uh, mind control devices that are out and about in the surrounding lands to try and uh, effect change, uh, weird defenses like... Um, Surrounding the island, like the fire seaweed for the colder, right, right. Yeah. Uh, the eld have uh, their trademark, you know, obscuring mists, um, and then extra planar gates that you can go back through and get a sense of what terrible stuff they're up to. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, so that was the strongest association for me by far. Um, <laughs> just thinking about uh, early D and D, I don't know that I uh, would point to any one specific thing here and say, ah, yes, this clearly influenced X or Y. But yeah. I can definitely see it as being, number one, a uh, a good yarn that influenced, uh, you know, Gijax and Arneson and uh, some of the other early writers, but also, uh, in particular, something that might be looked to as examples for domain gameplay interacting with the standard adventuring group. Mm -hmm. um, you open off with uh, with Simon and Jaylith acting as uh, you know rulers and commanders of this uh, position and figuring out not just 
what they need to do for themselves and for their friends, but how they need to discharge their responsibilities as defenders of this uh, of this country and of the people around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was struck now you just mentioned it, uh, you know, in the Eld. Um, actually, one of our Tuesday night games, we have a character who's an Eld, although he's an illusionist and not a Vivamancer. Oh, um, right on. <laughs> and with the big, you know, pointy head. Yes. Um, <laughs> he doesn't walk around with a wool hat. But um, uh, it, um, I was uh, mentioning in the book club that I felt, I felt that the colder were the sort of like the 60s stereotype of, of Soviet Russia, right? You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're centrally controlled, everyone's a faceless drone except for the leaders. But now that you started mentioning it, it made me even think it's not even just that. It goes on to the sort of almost like the James Bond version of communism, right? It feels a little bit like this, the whole um, colder almost feel like um, post-Goldfinger uh, James Bond villains, right? They have the secret lair. They have a submarine that goes in there. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, right? uh, you know, we have the – yet in the lair has the one thing that's ready to destroy the lair, the, the gate. Or, you know, like <laughs> – you know? right? So it started to feel a little bit James Bond. In a good way, I can I can definitely see that. No, I I think you're you're onto something there. Like the um, the odd aesthetics of the colder base and the you know like everything being hidden away um, except for mind control and the protagonist having to figure out like how to make his way around in the base. That definitely feels like something you'd see in a James Bond movie. And you know, weird blinking dials. That's always something like that. <laughs> <laughs> And it sounds like in general, Hamza, you are somebody who's comfortable getting uh, your science fiction mixed into your fantasy. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, I love both on their own, but I think that the sort of artificial barriers that get tossed in for the sake of genre purity are not necessarily worthwhile. And, you know, the the sort of remixing and intermixing that was going on particularly in, in some of the Appendix N books, uh, has a bunch of fruitful openings, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think there are some game systems that are doing a really fun job of exploring that now, like Solar Blades and, and Cosmic Spells. But I also think that you can absolutely still do this kind of stuff even with like old school essentials. Right, right. Well, no, I mean, so right yeah. now we're in the middle of um, Zine Quest, which is on, you know, the, on Kickstarter. People just encouraged to make zines and that. Uh, enormous number of them are sort of like genre genre remixes um well all sorts of systems not necessarily old school systems some are just doing their own games some are you know uh dcc and i know it's in particular a lot of people like to bring science fiction into dcc um but old school essentials i think is so hackable i think that's a very fruitful uh place Mm -hmm. to start and then all all the various powered by the apocalypse games seem to be seem to be you know a a pretty fruitful avenue for exploration there as well so I mean, we're going to be releasing uh, omnibus of the existing Hillcanton's adventures for old school essentials. So there will definitely be at least one product that's for OSC and explicitly has bubble cars and uh, blaster <laughs> guns and <laughs> yes. right. Um But I mean, y- you have things like Troika, which explicitly go ahead and mix some of the, you know, new wavy fa- uh, sci-fi elements in with the fantasy. Yeah, and. I think that after maybe the initial um, like middle to late TSR period, um, once you start to have things like even Shatterrun pop up, which were an, uh, an explicit 
decision to remix uh, sci-fi and fantasy back together that yeah. there's been increasing willingness to try and play with the ratio of how those interact. Now, do you feel like um, that you still need to have some sort of mundane baseline or, you know, you know, if everything is weird, if nothing is weird, is sometimes a phrase that's thrown out there. So, And what is that mundane baseline for you if you do feel that you need to have one? I don't know that you necessarily need to have a mundane baseline, but I think you need to have a consistent baseline and a consistent, um, I guess, understanding for the standard interactions within a campaign world. Mm -hmm. Whatever form that takes, that can vary greatly. Mm -hmm. But you want to have a campaign world that feels consistent in and of itself. But does it have to like have this low magic default and then introduce the uh, the higher power? No, mm-hmm. it can go either way. Just make sure that uh, it feels internally consistent and like the things, the higher powered Gonzo bits that you're adding in, are bits that the world itself takes seriously. That makes a lot of sense for me. That if anything is not explicitly said that is different from our world, then my assumption is that it's sort of like gravity still works, right? Yeah, Unless yeah. we're told that gravity doesn't work, right? Or yeah. it doesn't work weirdly here. Um, so th- that's for me what is necessary. It doesn't necessarily mean have to be like, oh, well, everybody has to, you know, punch in at nine to five and works a job, you know, that kind of stuff. But Sure. So uh, Hamza, one thing I was going to ask you is in this story, there are quite a few examples of improvised magic. And I'm curious, have you seen improvised magic work well in any gaming system before um, and or do you have any ideas of how you might incorporate improvised magic into your gaming? Um, so I think y'all touched on that in the first Witch World episode, and I've been thinking about it since listening to that one. So <laughs> um, there are a couple systems out there which I think uh, start covering that, but I have not uh, tried out it personally. I mm-hmm. think um, there's at least one GURP supplement that, uh, offers sort of a noun-verb framework for magic where you can sort of put together spells with different pieces that you know. Uh-huh. And I think that both Ars Magica and White Wolf's Mage mm-hmm. offer similar things along with sort of the prefab spells. But sure. I have limited experience with all three of those, so I couldn't tell you how well those work on the table. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like something that would be a fun thing for you to try to explore? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, like, being able to put together unexpected effects, uh, I think, is definitely a fruitful area. Um, one thing which I'd be curious to do is... Um, I have Actually, now that I'm saying this, I started uh, putting together notes for something to this effect uh, for Legacy of the BF. Um there's um, so Legacy of the Beath is a setting that's drawing specifically on um, medieval Islamic history, and there were a couple of uh, books from uh, m- the medieval Islamic world that discussed the creation of talismans, where you have um, you- you're trying to get the, uh, some connection with the stars being in a particular configuration to accomplish such and such a mystical end. And I uh, found out about that and thought, how would I make that a gameable thing? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the way I might do it is putting together a selection of uh, like 
nouns and verbs, like I alluded to for the GURPS magic, where um, spellcasters have to figure out what um, what uh, material components to put together in order to link them with the things that they want to affect, uh, setting up uh, correspondences between the spell components and the um, and the world that they're trying to affect, and then integrating uh, a matrix game where. Uh, matrix games are this uh, concept where the stronger arguments someone is able to bring, uh, it's then rolled against a chart to see whether uh, this falls into the very likely uh, improbable um, sort of gradation of possibility. So the player sort of constructs an argument based on the nouns and verbs that they have and says, I want it to do X. I, and I think it's going to do X because I put together this connection, that connection, this connection. Mm-hmm. The GM assesses it, sees how likely they think that's going to be, and based on that likelihood of success, then there's a percentile role or D6 role which the player makes to see if it works, mm. which I admit is a bit convoluted, maybe not the easiest thing to do on the fly when you're trying to you know, have your player characters track an underwater submarine while they're on a sailing ship. <laughs> but, um, but I think that there is possibility there, and it's something that I'd love to see systems worked out for. Right. Would that then be the central activity of the campaign, the way that the magic system is in Mage for, you know, the White Wolf games? Or is that something that's parallel with the other traditional, you know, fantasy activities? As I envisioned it, I was thinking of using that system for... Uh, crafting talismans, so it would be something that the um, that spellcasting characters would be doing in downtime. I see. But yeah. uh, the initial process of ha- having to find spell components, which then ha- uh, you assert those mystic linkages, right. I can see that as a particular adventure driver. Sure, sure. And then the talismans themselves would then be more powerful than anything that you could sort of come up in the spur of the moment in terms of the normal uh, adventure activities, right? Because the talisman has a dedicated purpose and pool as opposed to like, oh, I'm going to try to do a little uh, blinking lights over here to distract this guy over here. Well, the the thing about the talisman is that it's constructing something which is going to have a lot more con- uh, long-term effect. Right. Yeah, in a way that the sort of immediate spur of the moment thing, uh, you know, might not. And with the talisman, like... If it doesn't work, you can still probably rework something and try again later while an improvised spell is, well, you know, it, you're taking a chance. It might work. It might, you know, sit there ineffectually. Right, right. I could definitely see that as, a, a, as you say, a downtime or a side game, the way that, um, like, Microscope or um, what's that one? Do not, do not Let Us Die in the Cold of This, the cold of this Winter. Like oh, a, of this I've dark winter, yeah, dark winter. Cecil House. Yeah, Cecil House game. Or oh, there's a cool. new one also on ZineQuest, uh, Artifact. It's about like, how you create magic items through um, like the history of oh. the items. And it's, it, I think it just was uh, ended today. But, um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it'll be available in some other way. But I just For thought, sure. like, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, that'd be a great, uh, both either a GM tool or, again, a game that can be played between sessions with you and your magic user over, you know, an email exchange or, or a Slack exchange or something like that. You know, yeah. I, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see that. And then to get it to the right balance of, of um, flavor and usability is, of course, the trick. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, 
you first developing it out and then play testing and play testing and play testing. Um, but do you see that going with like um, uh, uh, any system, or would it be like an OSE bolt-on, uh, uh, Troika bolt-on? Or so what? right now, my personal design space is very much in the OSE bolt-ons area. Mm-hmm. That's sort of what I'm thinking in these days. But I can see the frameworks described as something that could well fit into other traditional games with this sort of pacing and framework. Mm-hmm. So one thing I would love to ask you about, um, mind control. Mm-hmm. So here we have a few of our main characters who are under mind control. Um, how well do you think that can work in a game? Um, Having players under the control of their enemies. I think it can work well. I think that players are often you know, excited and thrilled by the idea of suddenly getting to mustache twirl and play the bad guys. Yes. And you know, be deliberately unhelpful to their uh, fellow players. <laughs> um, exactly. The old school style of now your character is an NPC, that is not fun. The now let's have you act as evil as you can, that's totally fun. Yeah. And I, I know that in past games, when I've, you know, passed a note to a player explaining what's going on, like my players have 100% like tossed themselves into it and, you know, no, I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. <laughs> right. right. Uh, I, I think it's a license for a sort of a useful kind of PvP. I, I generally don't allow PvP at my table from like, oh, my, this is what my character would do anyway. That's kind of like just a like, you know, that's my jerk license. But when you actually have it within the narrative of, oh, this has happened, you know, you've gotten, you've gotten the whammy put on you. Okay, go for it. That's, that's, that I'm much more comfortable with than just saying like, oh, well, the paladin and the thief are just going to get into it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one thing I'd note for uh, mind control stuff, um, there are you know, questions of agency around mind control that sort of flag it as perhaps something that's worth checking in with players about uh, before you start tossing it in too readily. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I don't know if you all saw this, but um, Wizards of the Coast released a very uh-huh. quickly taken down uh, Unearthed Arcana uh, sort of playtest update for a love cleric that was all about mind control uh, as uh, as the center of love, and that <laughs> yeah. very understandably raised a bunch of eyebrows. Yep. And that that feels really terrible. And oh god, no, why, no, right, right. right. <laughs> so, but I think it's also a useful reminder that when it's getting into something that can. Uh, take away a character uh, a character's agency in a way that's directly pinging at the player. It might not hurt to check in beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And uh, I think that's a good point. Even just like the traditional old school players, we said, "Oh, you're gonna be geese to be loyal to this person." You can see like some of the really sour expressions on some of the people's faces when they're sitting <laughs> around the table. So, and that's not even directly advocating that you play something. You say, "Oh, this guy's off the table as an enemy for a while." So, if we're talking about literally, okay. Um, you're going to be here, and you're going to be tapping into this sort of darker part of, you know, this character's behavior. Then, as you say, a check-in is definitely called for. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Hamza, did you find that there is anything particularly stealable from the uh, web of the witch world that you would like to use yourself? So, uh, the one area that I definitely am actually going to be going back to is the setup at the start. The, um, the discussion about 
uh, after Lois has been kidnapped and they recognize, oh, it's that guy again. Um, well, what do we do? Um, how do we accomplish this without uh, leaving the border unguarded and without step playing into their hands? Mm. And I'm uh, these days I'm really interested in getting domain game components in and figuring out ways that characters can engage in that stuff at lower levels. So I, I'm particularly curious to uh, look back at how Norton sets up that situation and think about the levers that the player characters have available mm -hmm. to then figure out how to set up systems that let uh, let PCs come to similar decisions. Right. Um, that's the one like high level system thing. As for the uh, other parts of the book, like as we've discussed, the improvised magic would be fun, and there are a bunch of cool colder weapons that will definitely be showing up in uh, adjusted and reskinned format the next time I'm doing something with the Eld. Right, right. Yeah, whatever that, yeah. whatever their weirdo microwave gun is, you don't even see a totally. beam come out of it. Um, I oh do... yeah, that that giant heat blasting light ray, right. and also the like the the the, the life shriveling rifle thing. Right, right. Like entropy assault rifles is great. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, I do like in, in when you're talking about the, the hard choices that have to be made. Right. They know that they can invade Carson, but they can't hold it. It's it's ridiculous for them to even stay there. Right. right. Um. And so those kind of hard choices that have to be made. I think she's also quite effective at moving the characters through different kinds of terrain. They experience it. Like, mm -hmm. not just as like, oh, I'm in a swamp. But like, I'm in a swamp, and this is what it means. I might sink into this bog. I'm incredibly thirsty. I can't find clean water. Right. Uh, I'm in this ravine. I have cover from this laser tower. Um, so that she she plays with all those things very effectively. And and even the, the maritime stuff. And sometimes it's hard to do all those different kinds of things. We just kind of hand wave it. Like, oh. You know, you, you get there, your ship, you know, your ship is a sailing ship, but it just moves like a regular motorboat. It goes straight to the place, you know. Um, there, there's often a quip that uh, all games uh, that deal with horses, so not just uh, RPGs, but also video games, yeah. uh, horses are remarkably like, say, motorcycles in right. terms of the, you know, usage. You know, if you just get off, it'll park there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You just right. keep it topped off and maybe right. take it in for maintenance once in a while and you're good. Uh, once a month, you know, <laughs> worry about it. It won't shy. You know, it'll go through fire, no problem. You know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. So is there any kind of last thing about Web of the Witch World you wanted to chat about before we wrap this episode up? Mm. No, I think we've hit on uh the highlights. I didn't have any sort of parting thoughts right now beyond I enjoyed this book, and I'm curious to read the first one and the third in the series. Yeah, I think she does. Yeah, they lay a lot of pipe very effectively in this book. So, yeah. And do you have any projects coming up that you would like our listeners to know about? Uh, coming up, um, the one, uh, let's see, I'm working on organizing Hydrazine, uh, a, uh, a sort of house magazine for the Hydra Cooperative. It's been uh, delayed more than a couple times, so I'm not giving any uh, time frame as to when it's coming out, but we have material for the first two issues good to go, and cool. I'm really excited about it. Um, we also dropped, uh, as as mentioned at the start of the show, Lauren Song of The Bachelor. Uh, that released um, late, uh, late 2019 in uh, November, and it's uh, ZDX Hughes... Um, first, I guess, full-length RPG material. 
and it's a module looking at um, uh, love gone sour and colonialism, and it's a weird magical journey up a river, and there's a giant crocodile who wants to eat you, and it's great. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if people want to find you or any of these products online, what is the best way for them to do this? So I'm online on Twitter at uh, at A-L-L-A-N-D-A-R-O-S, Alandaros. Um, and I'm tweeting uh, both about gaming stuff and about uh, day job and political stuff, so it's not entirely a gaming thing. But um, I, I also tweet for the Hydra Cooperative un, uh, over at Hydra Co- C-O-O-P, Hydra Co-op, and that's just keeping up with all of our gaming creations. And you can find the website at Hydra CO OP and materials on both Exalted Funeral and Drive to RPG. Very nice, very nice. And how very do you, cool. uh, I mean, this cooperative, I guess it's a longer question, but how do you keep the whip hand going with everything that's going on there? So, so many people involved in that. Uh, the whip hand has been lying fallow for a while because everyone's been wrestling with life stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, like folks are dealing with, uh, you know, New kids, uh, new jobs, uh, just getting everything in order. So it's slow but determined uh, forward momentum. There you go. And Hoy, how can folks find us? All right. If you want to email us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're on Facebook and MeWe and the other social media platforms as well. And uh, if you... Um, like us, please rate us and review us on your podcaster of choice. It helps people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, our Patreon. So um, as a member of our Patreon, you are able to join us for our patron book clubs that happen before the episodes. And today, Noah Green and Adam Styers joined Hoy and I to have a fun little discussion about Web of the Witch World. And we actually decided we're going to go ahead and release that on our main feed a week from a week after this episode drops, just in case people want to hear what it what, what it sounds like on the Patron Book Club, you'll get an opportunity to kind of get an insider's peek. But usually, those episodes are only available on our actual Patreon feed. Uh, but we'd also like to give a, um, a shout out to a handful of our patrons: Andrew Sternick, Andy Action, Christopher Murray, Mason Coffee. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you. Um, and also, our uh, next episode will be episode 66 on Lord Dunsany's The Charwoman's Shadow. And episode 67 will be on Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan at the Earth's Core. Hamza, awesome. again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Oh, it's so good. Thank you so much. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.